Welcome to FieldLink. I'm your host, Bill Smith. You know, many of us in agriculture often think of precision ag and data collection for the big guys, the big corn, soybeans, and cotton growers across the U.S. But on this episode, Brad Dressler from the Agri-Intelligence team with Helena in Pennsylvania shares how apple producers in New York, blueberry growers in Maine, and cranberry producers in Massachusetts are utilizing data to better serve their operations in addition to yield, but to help them better serve food security questions and sustainability insight. Plus, Jody Lawrence will join us from Nashville on how the drought conditions in Brazil may impact the overall demand for U.S. soybeans. Stay tuned for this episode of FieldLink. And welcome back to FieldLink. I'm your host, Bill Smith, and joining us today is Brad Dressler. Brad is an agri-intelligence technician uh, in the Eastern Business Unit uh, on the East Coast. Uh, Brad, welcome to FieldLink. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you having me. Hey, Brad, uh, just want to take a little time here. Uh, tell the folks and our listeners a little bit about you and what you do. Um, and tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so uh, I'm in uh, central Pennsylvania. Uh, I am support to our AI technicians out there in the field from basically Maryland, uh, the Mason-Dixon line, all the way up to upstate Maine. Um, I provide support for them on our agri-intelligence services, uh, agronomy, IT, equipment, and stuff like that. Um, my background, I'm not actually a farm kid. I did grow up in rural Pennsylvania, so I'm familiar with it, but uh, got heavily involved with uh, ag and FFA when I was in high school. Uh, went to Penn State for uh, a degree in agronomy and ag business, and then uh, transitioned into the the retail market after that, and been with Elena for going on five years now. Excellent, quite a background. Obviously, a Penn Penn State guy. Um, Nittany Lions are doing okay this year, right? Uh, yeah, they're they're doing all right. We can do a little better. There's always room for improvement. <laughs> all right. Well, tell us a little bit about some of your day-to-day activities, Brad. What are some of the crops that you predominantly work with uh, in, in your market? Yeah, my day-to-day varies quite a bit. Um, it can go from, you know, the wintertime doing a lot of uh, trainings and meetings with growers and uh, AI techs. Um, but uh to the summer, you know, the spring and summertime, doing a lot of crop scouting, uh, water sampling, helping my guys out with that. And then we transition into soil sampling in the fall, winter, and uh, yield data analysis uh, shortly thereafter. Um, the crop variety here in the Northeast in general uh, is, is it's pretty wild. Um, there's one of your previous guests, AJ, you know, he talked about in Woodstown, anywhere between 120 and 130 different crops that they cover. Um, for us, you know, the, the corn's probably still king, but corn, beans, wheat are huge. Uh, apples are probably shortly there behind and then all kinds of mixed uh, fruit and veg. Um, so, yeah, very, very diverse market, um, both in terms of the crop, uh, cropping uh, practices, uh, soil types and everything. So never know what you're going to be doing. It's different every single day. Yeah. You have a real wide geography, as you mentioned, Pennsylvania, you've got a lot of corn, uh, in, in some of your market right there in PA, but as you move further North, a lot of silage corn, uh, apples, even up in the Maine though, uh, we transitioned 
potatoes, for example. Uh, what are some other unique crops that you get to touch in your career today? Uh, some of the other unique unique stuff, uh, we'll, we'll stick up in Maine to start, um, low bush blueberries. There's uh, thousands of acres of blueberries growing up there, primarily for processing. Uh, but that's one thing that doesn't actually get a whole lot of recognition. You know, and uh, the potatoes in upstate Maine, a lot of people don't realize what a lot of the potatoes that we consume come from up there. Um, but then as you move a little bit further down the coast, um, you get into the real specialty type, smaller acreage, but real specialty type onions, uh, all kinds of mixed greens, um, herbs, spices, the whole nine yards. Um, so yeah, those are probably the, those are probably the, some cranberries in new, in new England as well. So, yep. Well, it's getting close to Thanksgiving time and you know, cranberries are pretty popular, obviously. Uh, so you, so you get certainly got your hand into that mix. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the blueberries in Maine. Uh, can you tell us a little bit what are the real differences between that type of blueberry that are grown in Maine versus other blueberries, uh, say in the Carolinas, for example? Sure. So when when I say a low bush blueberry, these are all naturally growing blueberries out in fields, basically. Um, and one thing that probably sets them apart is that. They go on a two-year rotation. They actually only harvest a crop every other year. Um, so you have a vegetative year um, and then a, a production year where on the off years, they actually burn those fields back, some by means of chemical, but a lot of the guys still physically burn them with fire. They burn that vegetation back, um, keep them low, and then in the following year, uh, they'll actually harvest the berries. Uh, there is some mechanical harvesting in some of the flatter areas, but a lot of it is still harvested by hand. Um, so that's probably the biggest difference. And a lot of the guys in that area are, um, haven't really tried to push those natural blueberries in the last few decades. So that's kind of where, uh, Helen has been playing an integral role with that here in the last two years, uh, trying to integrate some of our high ground, uh, inspects and, uh, extractor programs in there to help kind of push some of these yields for the guys up there. Yeah. That's, that's kind of an interesting area. You know, when we talk about agrointelligence, um, obviously Helena's platform for precision agriculture, but not just precision part, it's really analyzing the data and taking that data and interpret it and, uh, to, to make better agronomic decisions, Brad, tell us a little bit how you capture data and the importance of data, and how do you go about capturing that data? Yeah, so let me preface this whole data discussion by saying this. Um, when we talk data, us at Helena, we want quality data. There's the saying, junk data in, junk data out, right? So we really make it a point to make sure we're getting good quality data. And we're very deliberate about the data that we get when we get it. Um, we're not just here to gobble up all the data we can possibly get. We're here to get it for the growers, help them shed light on their operation and, and ultimately provide them a better ROI. Um, you know, the importance of it, there's a lot of different reasons why collecting the data is important. You can look at yield, for instance, you know, just in terms of testing products, uh, hybrids, varieties, and stuff like that. It's a big problem solving tool. So the more data that we have at our disposable, uh, excuse me, at our disposal, if we have a, a, a product claim or a potential issue, we can go back and look at that data and help problem and uh, troubleshoot some of those problems. Um, data is kind of integral in uh, progressive growers and operations being profitable on their operations. They need to have all the data at hand to be able to go back and look at that on a timely manner. 
Um, the data is also important in terms of food safety, right? Everybody wants to know where their food's coming from, if it's safe, um, be able to track that stuff. So that's a big part of it as well. And going forward, <clears throat> data is going to be a big part of not only Helena, but the ag industry in general in terms of sustainability in this whole carbon credit market. Um, so the more we can have now and build that uh, core of data that we have, that core data set, um, that it will be better off better off for the future. You know, Brad, you brought up two really unique points. I think a lot of times as producers, uh, we think about data as, boy, I'm going to get this information. It's going to help me make some better yields and I can, you know, put my fertilizer in the proper spot, or maybe I have a deficiency in, in, I don't know, copper or whatever it may be. And that's absolutely true. I mean, that, that is blocking and tackling, but you highlighted two areas that I think are really, really important and evolving specifically around food safety, you know, as consumers drive the demand of food and, and start to understand and, and want to know where those sources are coming from, collecting this data and this information is going to be absolutely critical. What, what are some of your customers asking for in terms of food safety and what are you picking up in the industry in that area? Yeah. So the customers uh, right now, the big thing they're asking for is just record keeping. They need a way to help keep records um, and actually be able to access those records, you know, in the future. So that's probably the number one thing. Um, and then the second would be just helping them to integrate new technologies into their operations. So, um, we're kind of on the bleeding edge of a lot of those technologies, whether it's, um, aerial type imagery or whatever. Uh, I'll give one example that's kind of new technology for our area, uh, might not necessarily be overseas and stuff, but we'll take the Apple market in upstate New York. Um, we now have the technology to essentially track back an apple to a specific crate within a specific block of time, um, in a, a specific block of apples, I should say, um, with basically a yield type map. So if you have a, a crate of apples that goes for pack out and hits a store and there's a potential issue, we can track that back to the exact block, uh, place and time and, uh, and be able to track that back for the customer. So we're helping them get familiarized with that type of technology and integrate that into their, their day-to-day operations. So that's just one example um, of what we're helping our growers do. And that's, that, that can be really huge uh, from depending upon the store and what the consumer may pay or, but just the peace of mind to know that, Hey, potentially, you know, there was an outbreak of some kind, something bad, but, uh, but something good too. Uh, that, that could be tracked back too. We saw, you know, an, an increase in the, some, t- some type of product that could benefit a consumer. Uh, we can tell that story through this data source that you referenced. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, Brad, Brad, you also hit the other point. And, and I think this is the, obviously this is uh, an area that's catching a lot of attention. It has been for a couple of years, but there's still a mystery out there. Uh, it's around sustainability. How can the data that you and your team at the Agri-Intelligence Group uh, that you're capturing better improve, I guess, the better understanding around sustainability? And Where's that going to take us potentially? Yeah. So, I mean, it has a name to it now, sustainability, but we've been under a lot of pressure in the Northeast for the last couple decades, honestly, with the Chesapeake Bay uh, movement, uh, trying to help get that cleaned up. So we've already been making some steps here within the last couple decades to to set us up for this. Um, in terms of what we're doing and collecting the data, though, for sustainability, um, it, it seems pretty trivial, but we're tracking 
basically every movement across field, right? So whether it's a planning pass, whether it's a tillage pass, whether it's a spray pass, whatever, um, we're tracking all those passes. We're tracking uh, machine analytics such as data, or excuse me, fuel consumption and so forth, um, and being able to utilize that data to essentially develop what the carbon footprint, quote unquote, would be for that specific acre on that field. So um, while it's kind of still the wild, wild west in terms of this, the carbon market, um, we're trying to set us our, ourselves up for success in the future just by having this, this data set at our disposal already. So basically, as of right now, we're just trying to collect it, all, all that data that we can. Yeah, I think that's an awesome point when you talk about the wild west. And what we've been doing for some time is is – you know, collecting all of this information in, in order for when that time does come, we can implement and activate and help that producer make a better decision for their whole operation, which could potentially include some sustainable uh, benefits for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And th- and there's some pilot programs that are out there running at net right now where they're incentivizing gro- incentivizing growers to to try some of these programs, and they're paying some pretty some pretty hefty sums dollars per acres for these guys to be doing this type of thing um, because uh, you know the ag industry likes to get a bad rap uh, for being hard on the environment, but when it comes to carbon credits and sustainability, there's going to be a lot of large manufacturing logistics companies that are coming to the ag sector to essentially buy those carbon credits to get them back to carbon neutral. So uh, if if a grower can be a little more efficient in what they do on a day-to-day and we can track that and help prove that to the government or whoever, um, that's going to be uh, hugely beneficial for them in the, in the future. Yeah, what's exciting about all of this is as a producer, you're working with the people that show up on your farm every day, your Helena representative, your AI team. They're there to help you make good production decisions, but also collecting this data to help you better understand how to manipulate it for your overall return on investment. And where that's going to be in the future, we it's still a bit of a mystery, but if we plan today, uh, you know, tomorrow could be pretty promising for some of those growers. Yeah, agreed, hundred percent. Brett, okay, so uh, you're as as in your role, you're collecting a lot of information for multiple crops today uh, in the East Coast, in PA, Maine, New England, New York. Walk us through the process after you collect this data. What do you do with it today? How do you uh, take it back to the grower and to help him or her make better decisions? Yeah, that that that's the key part, right? Because we can have all this data, but if there's no value to it, um, you know, you know that the grower's not going to be too apt to to work with us. But uh, I'll take a step back just for one second before we get into what we're doing with it. It's it's more the how we're getting it. Um, one thing with our agri intelligence team and Helen in general and our AI three hundred and sixty platform, we play very nice with all makes and models of equipment manufacturers, monitors, and the whole nine yards. So there's a few different ways we can actually pull that data. Um, you know, the, the old school ways, we run out to the combine or the sprayer, the planner, we stick a USB drive in the monitor, and we get it. We still do that on a daily basis pretty much. Um, but one thing that we've really uh, took some big leap forwards with here in the last few years is integrating with cloud-based services. So we're working very closely with John Deere Operations Center. You know, we can partner up with growers that use John Deere Ops, bring that uh, data in remotely. Uh, we use some other ones like Farm Mobile um, and uh, Climate Field View. 
uh, Raven Slingshot. There's a there's a list of them out there, right? That we integrate with very not very well. So, and once we get that data, it imports pretty much seamlessly right into AI 360. And that is where it goes from just um, you know your typical data collection into us providing the grower a real benefit in their data. So there's a few different ways we can return that to a grower, right? So we'll focus on yield, right? We'll, we'll, we're getting into that season. Um, the South is pretty much wrapped up. We're, you know, we're a little behind here in the Northeast. I'd say we're at least halfway through on our harvest. Um, so we'll focus in on that true yield piece just for the, the timing aspect. But um, there's a few different ways we can deliver it back. You know, we can do the traditional yield maps, right? We get a green good, red bad, uh, pretty yield maps. And sometimes they point some things out, you know, but more times than not, if you put a yield map in front of a grower, they can say, yep, yeah, that spot drowned it out. That's a shale knob. And one thing that we find very beneficial for us in the Northeast is, you know, people want to say in terms of collecting data, yield data, um, the even high ground that they think it's for the big guy, you know, for the big acres, for the big fields. That's not the case. Um, we actually find more of a value for it in my geography because of the variability we have in our soils. Uh, we don't have a lot of big fields. We, there are some, you know, 100, 200 acre fields, but uh, generally speaking, average field size is anywhere between 10 to 15, maybe even less acres, you know, per field. Uh, but take, for instance, I was just looking uh, this morning at a couple examples, a 30 acre field. It's not uncommon to have seven to 10 soil types within that 30 acre field. So we're really trying to highlight those um, and address them differently depending on what their nutrient holding capacity, so on and so forth. So just just a little sidebar on on that. Um, but uh, so we can we can return those typical yield maps, right? Uh, that those are fine. But more times than not, if you talk to a grower and they ask what are they doing with their yield data, they say, "Oh, it's in a binder sitting back there on the shelf. I got it back in 22, and I, I looked at it once. It looks it looks decent." Okay. Okay. Well, how, what have you done with it since then? Well, nothing. It's just sitting there. So that's where we really try to take it at the next level and give them something that they can go back to year after year and help improve their operation. So that's where you talk about yield by analysis. Um, and these are some pretty simple reports that we can run for, for growers, for operations. Yield by is yield by application, yield by hybrid, uh, variety, whatever you want to say. So that's when we're talking about data and whole, we want to make sure we're collecting that planting data. We want to make sure we're collecting the application data so that when we bring the yield in, we can overlay those, right? And see what actually did better, did worse. Um, so we can do those yield by analysis. Uh, in, another one that we can do is a profit loss map. You know, if we have all the inputs for that field, again, your planting, your application, your fertilization, all that stuff. Uh, we can put those layers in and actually lay in front of the grower and say, all right, in this particular acre of the block, you're making 500 bucks an acre. In this bottom corner here where the deer chewed it off, you're losing 50 bucks an acre. So it makes a nice map to actually go back and give them something tangible to look at. Um, but one thing that kind of sets Helena apart um, is something that's called an impact report through our true yield system. And an impact report can run on a field level. It can run on a whole operation level. And basically what this does is it brings in your yield data. And if you have soil data under there through our high grown program, it'll actually show you what, uh, uh, what the factors were in terms of nutrient pH and so forth are actually influencing yield. So this is, 
we got power numbers with this report right here. So the more acres we have in there uh, for an operation, this report becomes more powerful because we can run this impact report and it'll say, hey, look, on 60% of your acres, you were X deficient in potash and your yield suffered so many percent. So that actually gives that grower a really good report to look at and say, okay, next or that for our fall fertilizer, our spring fertilizer, we really need to hone in on phosphorus. So we really need to hone in on uh, potassium, and it gives them a really nice report to actually be able to to be able to utilize. Um, so those are kind of like those are the paper type of reports that we can return. But there's one other one in terms of yield data integration that we've seen probably the biggest benefit for in our growers in the Northeast. And that's utilizing this yield data to make our fertility recs. Um, so you can look at that in terms of, uh, you know, I break it down to you this way. Say a grower has a 50 acre block and their whole farm average on that, on that 50 acres was 200 bushel. But everybody knows in that 50 acres, you have areas that are hitting 250, 260, 270, but you also have the areas that are only making 100 bushel or 120, but you're still fertilizing that whole field for 200 bushel. So are we shorting ourselves on that high end? Are we over applying on that low end? So what we do is we bring in this yield data and we do is called normalize it, right? We bring in multiple years of yield data and it'll give us productivity zones in those fields. Um, and what those pro productivity zones do essentially is they vary our yield goal across that field. So instead of a 200 bushel average, it's going to be fertilizing for 250 or 260 in the center and around the borders, it's only going to be fertilizing for hundred bushel. Um, and what's interesting is uh, you can run the conventional recommendation alongside this normalized yield recommendation and your overall usage might be pretty close within a couple percent, but your ranges can vast, can vary, you know, drastically across that field and really hone in on where you need to be putting that fertilizer. And it's just really micromanaging that fertilizer on a, on a sub acre basis, really. Um, so we've had that, uh, we've used that a lot and that really comes in key when it comes to talking nitrogen. Um, we have a pretty large dairy in my area that we ran uh, these wrecks on their whole operation a few years ago. Um, and at the time, urea was pretty expensive. They do a, a, a blanket rat, a rate application of urea, and we save them between eighty dollars and $100,000 um, just on urea costs alone because they're overapplying in a lot of areas that just weren't going to produce, you know, whether it's uh, shaley ground, animal damage, whatever, we were able to bring their yield data in and save them a large sum of money just by, you know, utilizing it properly. So, well, and, and what's really exciting about that is when you're able to identify those situations that allows that producer to maybe to take some of those, I guess, dollar savings and apply them into other areas of their operation where they can bang it out of the park, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of these growers can take that from what they might've put on the ground and, and maybe move that to a foliar type HPG application, or it makes it a, it takes a little bit of sting out of it when you come to them with the, with the fungicide at tassel time. So, uh, just being able to help move those dollars around and make them more productive. And, and like I said before, you know, they want to see a better return on their investment. Brad, it sounds like you've had a pretty good uh, track record of some success stories with some producers. What uh, Can you share a story uh, where, where you implemented, you referenced the dairy producer, but how about some other success stories where you utilized agri-intelligence to help a producer make better decisions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, 
there's kind of countless ones, honestly, Bill. Um, and I don't know that I can, I can hone in on one in specific, but the, the general theme from some of our more progressive guys is they're, they're stuck on maybe a grid type sampling operation, whether it's a two or five acre and they have a, they have a hard time seeing the vision of what a high ground, uh, what a high ground service might look like. So a lot of times we'll take it to them and we'll, we'll just give them, give them a couple acres just to see it. Because when you can actually see it on their op, on their own operation, it seems to make them a, a lot more sense. Um, but, but generally speaking, the, the most success we have with a lot of our growers is when we offer all the services together, right? We don't want to just be in there and, and, and take soil samples in the fall, make a fertility recommendation and see you next fall. You know, no, we want to be keyed in on all those successes failures, trials, and tribulations throughout the season. So we want to be in there with the soil sampling. Uh, we'll help make those fertility recommendations. We want to be back there in the spring and pull the water, you know, an aqualens sample to make sure their water is going to be right for these thousands upon thousands of dollars they're putting in the tank every time they go out to spray, you know, and then that just turns into the, the scouting and tissue sampling. And then when we come back and we tie that in with true yield, it just, it's a report card for the whole year and the process starts over again, you know, so we just want to be in constant contact and be that trusted advisor, that partner in their operation, just to help them be successful throughout the year and, and be more successful in the years to come. I think that's really important, Brad. What you just outlined there is what I consider, you said it, trusted advisor, a true solutions provider when you're step-by-step step through the whole process uh, and taking this data to, again, to help producers make a better decision for their operation that will return them a better investment on their operation today, but also identifying some of those things and preparing for the future, like we talked about earlier, whether it's food security or whether it's a sustainable program, you're setting that grower up for a long-term success. And I think that's really awesome what you and your team do at, with an agri-intelligence platform. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, uh, I'm the guy on here talking, Bill, but I can't take credit for what gets done there out in the field. I have, I have a team of about 15 AI techs that are running around, pulling the dirt, pulling the samples, and and they're the team that gets, gets all the credit. It's a, it's a heck of a team and a, and a great company to work for. Well, it's really exciting to hear you talk about the people and the folks that are actually boots on the ground, interacting with growers, making stuff happen in order to capture all of this data to make these decisions. And you're right, uh, Brad, it takes quite an operation of folks to do so. And you've got a great team that you've assembled in the northeast part of the United States, as well as there's a lot of great teams across the whole U.S., but uh, I know you're pretty proud of the team you've assembled. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we continue to grow and get more acres and that team grows every year and uh, just happy to be a part of it. Brad Dressler, I uh, want to thank you for joining us today here on FieldLink and sharing some of your insight around the importance of data uh, from the agri-intelligence platform and how it's impacting growers in the Northeast U.S. Absolutely, Bill. It's a pleasure to be on here with you and uh, I thank you for the invite. Thanks, Brad. And now joining us from Nashville is Jody Lawrence. Uh, Jody, uh, lots of happening here. We got the USDA report that just recently was released, and we've got crazy dry weather in Brazil and throughout South America, certainly impacting our grain markets. Uh, Jody, welcome to FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be back ahead of uh, the big push towards the holiday season with just, I guess, nine days maybe not even that, to uh, Thanksgiving. So everything will start moving awfully quick as we move into the end of the year for sure. 
But uh, yeah, the big thing is last Thursday's or the big the biggest USDA report till the end of the year was last Thursday's November uh, stocks and production number. And what the USDA found was consistent with what everybody had been telling me and uh, all the emails and texts and phone calls for all the Helena customers through all the uh, Corn Belt, Midwest, uh, Delta, uh, Northeast over the last month was that the corn crop really came in, was coming out of the field uh, a little bit better than everybody expected. And while not everybody was completely thrilled with their yields, there was a, a huge section of very productive ground uh, east of the Mississippi when you go from north and central Illinois, north central Indiana, across into Ohio, where they had at record, if not record, corn yields. And I talked to a lot of people, and that's what made me start to worry just a little bit that the USDA may even find a larger number. But they adjusted it up from 173 in October to 174.9 in uh, in the November number. And historically, the difference between the November and the final January, when you have a year like this where harvest is really accelerated, you've got corn harvest reported yesterday at 88%. Uh, typically, you're in the high 80s, low 90s this time of year. But that's really with a big crop like this, because we had ninety three close to 93 million acres, we're going to have over 15 billion of total production. And in those high production areas I talked about, they're the slowest because their corn is still really wet. They have high moisture simply because that's what you get with a great crop. Fortunately, it takes a while for it to dry down when you have high yield. And that 174.9, we don't expect it to change much. Uh, it, may, it may be adjusted a, a per, you know, a, a tenth of a percent or so in the January report. Uh, but the bi the big thing is they also found a few extra tents on bean yields, but the U.S. bean yield ended up at, uh, for the November report at 49.9. So under 50 and psychologically just not that big of a adjustment. And what beans are trading now is the Brazilian weather because you've got the northern two-thirds of Brazil and this time of the year in their crop cycle, this is their much larger bean production time. And what, as we get into the winter and the beans are harvested, we will get into their larger corn production time with the safrina crop in Brazil. So what you have is a domino effect right now. Planting is behind because it's been so dry through their winter into early spring that planting progress is about 10 to 15 percent behind normal pace. And the dominoes that fall when Brazil has a planting problem uh, this time of year, their spring or late fall, early winter, is that it also affects how late the harvest is, and then how late the corn uh, is planted in the safrina crop. And that's really what the market's reacting to. We had a great day on Monday, and beans continue to surge. We have uh, gotten the uh, March contract ticked just barely over $14. And that was, uh, it, that's, you know, within 20, 30 cents of the summer high. 
for the November contract. So we are seeing some really good bean prices. And this would always encourage all the farmers when they're looking at their marketing plan, the best time to market your beans is during a South American weather problem because they produce so much more than we do. Brazil alone is going to outproduce the U.S. And if you add in Argentina, they will outproduce us by nearly two billion bush, over two billion bushels, which is uh, 150% of what the U.S. is going to produce this year. And the nice thing about them having weather issues, and we know there are weather issues all over the world for everyone's crops, is that it will not affect one uh, bushel of production on a U.S. farm. Uh, while we're, you know, we're months and months away from planting and months and months away from worrying about whether we're too hot and dry, this is an excellent time to squeeze that extra premium out of the market. And I'm encouraging everybody to just continue to ease beans out into this rally because you're getting some of the best prices of the year. Demand has really ramped up over the past month. The uh, in both the bean crush uh, arena because the margins are spectacular, uh, the feeding, the on-feed numbers on all U.S. Uh, livestock are higher than they were at this time last year. So from a feed standpoint, that's helping. And also from China, as they become concerned that their Brazilian production that they normally get in the January, February, early March time frame will not be available. So they've been very aggressive buyers of U.S. beans for that time slot delivery over the last month. And an interesting development today that needs to be watched. I'm not sure how much it will impact, but President Biden and Chairman Z are meeting later today. And historically, when you kind of have a, uh, a meeting at this high level, that you uh, get some sort of olive branch from China on U.S. purchases. So we expect maybe not this week in the flash sales uh, or in this week's weekly export report, but to see some additional sales pop up that probably come from a little bit of a peace offering at this meeting. So just an awful lot going on. There's a lot going on, and, and, and you hit it on that soybean piece. Uh, domestic demand, I think that is really a highlight here for soybeans. Um, certainly, you, you referenced China and the global demand and some of the things in Brazil, but Jody, we built a lot of crush plants here in the last handful of years, and that demand is huge, and they need to be filled. Yeah, and, we, and we've talked about the uh, visits that we've made. We were in Norfolk, Nebraska, doing a meeting at that branch. And just right next door, there's this huge, shiny new uh, soy biodiesel plant that's in the uh, later stages of being built. And they were talking about an enormous amount of bean use. And it's one of three that's currently uh, being built and expected to be up for the 24 harvest, just within about a 200-mile triangle in that part of Nebraska. So it is uh, really uh, interesting to me to see what beans could do with uh, some, and, and it doesn't even have to be significant, a 5% loss to Brazilian bean crop. When you start talking about 4 billion bushels, uh, you know, all of a sudden, 
you're looking at 200 to 250 uh, million bushels. And in the U.S., for comparison, a 5% loss would have taken trend at 50 down to, you know, 46 to 47. And beans really could be the leadership that this market has needed uh, all year and uh, drag corn up with it, kicking and screaming, and really where that benefits, because there will definitely be a shift in acreage next year uh, to more beans. And I'm closely watching December 24 corn just to see how aggressive it is going to be to be buying back those acres. So I think we've got a lot of interesting opportunities. uh, And, you know, no point in saying that the markets are always volatile. They're just becoming more volatile. We're just in a position heading into the holidays and into 24 that you have got four or five different factors that all could be a powder keg. And one of the things we've talked about for the last, gosh, 18 months now, we hadn't even mentioned yet, and that's what could potentially happen in Russia and Ukraine. So uh, awful lot going on. And, you know, I want to hedge some beans on this rally. Uh, Diesel has been uh, tipping down on the – the fact that Iraq has not gotten involved in the Israel-Hamas conflict and that opportunity uh, when diesel early or late last week was down the 270-280 futures range gives everybody, and we're still, I think we're trading 292 today on December futures, to top off your tanks, finish up harvest, be ready for the spring because we know what diesel uh, what diesel and crude can do, and and crude under eighty dollars is a buy, is a buy and a hedge opportunity on farm at any time. Yeah, that energy area it's uh it's hard it's sad to say, but one small incident in the Middle East could change that overnight. And uh, looks like there could be an opportunity for growers to take a position at this point in time. Uh, Jody, uh, as we kind of wrap things up here on this episode of FieldLink, anything else uh, before we uh, close out? No, I think we've kind of covered everything. The one thing to closely watch, and this is going to be over the Thanksgiving holiday, that's the next time that they have really any chance of meaningful rain forecast in that northern two-thirds of Brazil. And with the 100 to 110 degree temperatures they're going to have this week, that rain will be critical. So we could come back from Thanksgiving that Sunday night and Monday and really have some fireworks in that market if that rain doesn't materialize. And then, uh, you know, in the big picture, you get a situation where if it does, uh, a lot of this can be taken back quickly. So that's why I'm wanting to hedge and sell into these rallies. A couple other things on the bigger macro picture was the uh, inflation data for October came out this morning and they are, they've got it under control. It was lower than everybody expected. And you've got interest rates dipping back a little bit, but I certainly think that 24 is going to offer a much better opportunity uh, for, to save on interest rates than 23 did. So looking forward to some interesting things. And then, then the big picture uh, this has been mentioned several times, unless crude and natural gas go berserk, uh, we're seeing that uh, all the application and all of the inputs are relatively flat from last year. So it's a really good time to be 
getting all your prepay done, get all your tax planning and your cash management done uh, to get the 23 taxes right and be in position to start out 24 on the right side of all of this because with harvest wrapping up, uh, it'll give you a good time to sneak away from the in-laws to uh, work on your books a little bit. All right, Jody, I want to thank you for joining us here on this episode of FieldLink. Some great advice for growers uh, to take 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 advantage of here as we kind of roll into the holiday season, specifically around Thanksgiving. Jody, thanks for joining us here on FieldLink, and have a great Thanksgiving holiday. You too, Bill, and happy Thanksgiving to everybody out there, and uh, appreciate all the hard work you did all year to uh, get this big crop out. Thanks for joining us for this episode of FieldLink. 